Well, many of you know uh, about our ministry that we're involved with every summer called Royal Family Kids Camp. Uh, we, this is now the 20th year that we have uh, ministered to uh, foster care children in Kane County uh, through a camping ministry. Uh, this year, we're looking for more volunteers. We want to host more children at that camp. Uh, you're going to see a video in just a moment that, that tells you more about Royal Family Kids Camp. And if after today's service you want to find out more information, you can stop by a kiosk in the lobby where you see the purple balloons or you see people wearing the purple t-shirts. You can find out more there. Let's watch the video. Hi, my name's Autumn and I'm a counselor for Royal Family Kids Camp. When I was six, given my mom's circumstances of being in and out of jail, suffering from drug abuse, postpartum depression, it was ultimately a choice to go to Moose Heart or end up in the foster care system. Besides being really nervous and scared and just like not knowing what to expect, but it was also exciting and kind of like a new chance. So my first like huge experience on that Royal Family Kids Camp was actually before I even got on the bus. I met another camper who was in my cabin who actually happens to be like my like lifelong best friend. When me and Alexis first came to camp, we were very similar in the sense that like we were both the first sibling who had younger brothers, didn't have the best family life. I think Juliana was not only like a camp counselor, but also kind of like a bigger sister to us in a sense. She was a good role model, like somebody that we looked up to, that we could have fun with, that we could talk to. The most important part of camp that really stuck with me as I was a kid was just like noticing like that the same people showed up every single summer to serve God, but to also be there for kids that are in need and can really use like a week of fun and love. Over the years of attending Royal Family, like obviously there was a really big sense of family, community, and friendship, but it also made like going to church and learning about God like a fun thing. Royal Family made it interactive and made it feel special in the sense that like teaching children that they're royal and that they have meaning and value at a young age I think is really important and meaningful. Filling that gap in between camp, you know, waiting until the next summer, Juliana and I would write letters, she would send me Christmas cards and that was something that I think really like strengthened our relationship and you know let me know as a child like oh this isn't just my counselor at camp like this is someone that cares about me and loves me year-round just like you know god would do or a family does you know like their love doesn't just stop Hello. i've always thought that you were special and you always held like a very deeply special place in my heart and only getting to see you once a year i've you know wanted you to have something to that you could look back on all year and like know that you are always gonna be on my mind, you're always gonna be part of my life and my thoughts and my prayers. My dearest Autumn without an end, Lynn. <laughs> I didn't put an end? Wow. If there's ever a time I can't be with you, never forget how much you, how much I love and care about you. You are a beautiful young woman who has fully captured my heart. You're on my mind every day. You never leave my heart and I have your Italian bracelet with me as a reminder. No matter what, I'll always see you 
again, you're so wonderful. Everybody in my life knows about you because you have such an impact on me. Love you forever, your sister Juliana. I think volunteers for Royal Family Kids Camp, especially the counselors, you know, the impact that they have on the campers that they might not necessarily realize is really big. I decided to come back and be a counselor because again, I know how much impact it had on me as a child. It really is like a family, like there's people that have been there for years and years, there's people that are just starting. So it's really cool to come back to the same people who are there for the kids, but also for God, because they know that there's a reason why they're being called to come back every year and volunteer. Well, I love that we get to share stories like that at Chapel Street. I think it's really special that we get to hear from Autumn uh, and her experience. Uh, it's just good news. It's good news to hear about how God is through you, through volunteers like you, uh, touching the hearts of kids that need to know that they're created in the image of God, that they are significant, that they mean a lot to Him. That's kind of what we're talking about this morning. So it was a perfect way for us to start thinking about this, to think about those that are created in the image of God. Uh, but as, uh, as I've been preparing for this, I've been thinking about this series. We've called it The Good News According to Genesis, or The Good News of Genesis. And uh, I have to admit that I, sometimes I can approach the Bible with this pessimistic attitude of like, oh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to tell me about the things that are wrong, the things that are broken, the things that need to change. But I think what, what a terrible perspective of the Bible that is. And I've been convicted this week especially to, to see the Bible for what it is to see the Bible as good news, that every page of it is full of good news for us, and Genesis especially. Uh, I think like as I've gotten older, I've become more and more a person who's kind of curmudgeon. Janir tells me this all the time, that I used to be a lot more optimistic and hopeful and have a great outlook, and I've just, as I've got older, I've let life kind of make me more of a grumpy person. So Janir's always telling me off. I'm that person who, when I see someone turns the car in the driveway around on our driveway, I'm grumpy. I'm like, oh, something's going on. What's this? Who's this? Is someone coming to see us? You remember the days when someone used to knock on your door and you used to be happy about it? But no, alas, I've allowed myself to become that grumpy person. So reading Genesis this week, and especially chapter one, it's been good for God to remind me personally, Andrew, that there is good news on every page. That we shouldn't be as Christians, a glass half full kind of people at any point because the Bible tells us the glass is full, period. And Genesis 1 is, is particularly great at that because on every line, we're told that every day of creation is good. And we're going to come to a moment today where not only is creation good, but creation is very good. We're coming to this moment where everything comes together to this climax. Last week, Pastor Brian shared this quote from Francis Collins. Francis Collins was the head of the Human Genome Project, uh, part of a, a crew of scientists that were mapping the human genome. Uh, and this is what he said. He says, when you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as though it knew we were coming. It's an interesting quote from a scientist there, a Christian scientist who tells us that creation is pointing towards something. Everything that we've heard about in the first six days of creation should lead us as people to kind of wonder as we reflect on the stars and the moon and the sun and all the beautiful things that God has created. We should come, like the, the author of Psalm 8 came to this point where he said, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And yet when we read what we're going to look at today, we will find the same answer that that psalmist found. 
when he tells us that yet you have made him man a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the work of your hands and you've put all things under his feet. Here's what my hope is for us this morning as a church family, as a group of believers together, is that we would come to the same place as the author of Psalm 8. That we would reflect and we would consider this story of creation and realize that when God comes to creating human beings, he is doing something incredibly significant and unique. Something that we haven't read anywhere else in Genesis 1. And here's what in particular I think we need to pick up is that God is declaring to us through Genesis 1 that our lives matter to him. That every human life is significant and important and valuable. Your life is of indescribable value and worth to God. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, we're told in Psalm 139, that God has imparted something to you that he has withheld from the rest of creation. His image. And you and I, I think, need this good news more than ever. We need it to penetrate our souls and to remind us of who we are as people, who we are before this God of the universe who's created the heavens and the earth, how he sees us. And we're gonna do this by looking at it in three ways. The idea that we are designed by God, the idea that we are defined by God, and lastly, that we are dignified by God. Let's talk first about what it means to be designed by God. I was going through some family pictures recently. Every so often I get a little nostalgic, want to look back as we kind of celebrate a a new birthday for the kids. We want to look back and see all the time that's passed, how they've grown. Uh, And I noticed something about my second son, Ben. I want to show you a picture. This picture is of, that's me on the left, and that's little Ben on the right. Now, I have never been one to think that my kids look overly like me, and quite honestly, I pray that they don't look like me. I pray they look like their mother. It would be much better for them in the long term. But I saw this picture, and we unprompted, we never told Ben that I had done that face when I was a kid. We never said anything about that, and yet here I find in my son's face a little reflection of my own face from when I was his own age. Never told him about that, never instructed him to do that, but his, my likeness is in my son's face. And I was really struck by that. Really made me think, how interesting is it that God has wired us in such a way that we see in our children ourselves? And I wonder if God did that intentionally to help us understand some of what it's like to be created in his image. To understand what it is like to bear his likeness. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we're told this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the beds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The Bible is insisting that there is a uniqueness to your design. There is an intentionality to your design as a human being. You might notice that if you read through Genesis 1 and you're traveling through each day, this is the point where the song kind of changes key. There's a shift in everything that's happening. There's this pattern that has been forming over the last six days of creation where God says, let there be, and it was. Let there be, and it was. Let there be, and it was. And there's evening and morning, the end of the day, and a new day begins. 
But on the sixth day, God creates, he says, let there be uh, wildlife, let there be creatures that fill the earth. And then instead of the day ending, something changes. The pattern changes. The rhythm of the song changes and God stops. It's almost as if he kind of brings everything to a silence for a moment. And then God does something that he hasn't done in the rest of the narrative. He talks to himself. God talks to himself and says, let us create man in our image. Let's do something different. Let's let this next creation be utterly unique. And the Bible goes on throughout every page after this to insist on this uniqueness about human beings. In Genesis 5, after Adam and Eve have left the garden, this is what we're told. This is the book of the generations of Adam when God created man. He made him in the likeness of God. This idea that we're created in the image of God, it just goes on and on in every generation, every page, all the way through to the New Testament. When Paul is preaching in the book of Acts, he says this in Acts 17, he said, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live, move, and have our being. And Paul even highlights some of their own poets in their own culture who say, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. And so throughout the story, the followers of God, the people of God want to insist that there is something unique about human beings. There is something utterly unique about us. So what does it mean that we are created in the image of God? What does that mean that you and I bear this image? Well, if I'm honest with you, we do not have enough time to plumb the depths of what that means for us. That is the most significant thing that God has ever said about you and I that were created in his image. But here are a few highlights. Here's a few highlights about what this means for us. Firstly, it means that we are uniquely thoughtful. We're uniquely thoughtful. We are the only creatures that God has made that can think and question and act over our instincts. There are animals out there, if you're a weirdo like me who likes to watch nature documentaries, you read about these animals that are almost pre-programmed to do what they do. But human beings are different. We think, we ask questions, we analyze. Human beings are the only creature that God created that asks questions about morality and beauty and the time span of our life and legacy. We're uniquely emotional because we grieve for things in the way that other living things don't. We mourn for one another. We cry out when there's injustice in our society, when there's pain and suffering in our society amongst people we love. We're the only creatures in all of God's creation that mourn and feel emotion about the questions that we ask. Where does that come from? Where does all this thinking and questioning and, and emotion come from? It comes from the image of God that you and I are uniquely crafted to reflect the one that's made us. The image of God also means that we are uniquely relational. When God makes man and woman, he does something really unique. He says, let us make man in our image. This has confounded scholars for many, many years. Jewish scholars that look at the Hebrew and try and ask this question, why would God say us? And as Christians, what we believe is that this is the first inkling of the Bible of God expressing this complex nature that he has that we call the Trinity. That God is one God in three persons. And so there at creation, God 
in, in community, in relationship with himself, expresses this desire to make something in that image. One of the uh, commentators I was reading this week says this, God's decision to make humans in our image after our likeness probably points to a plurality in God's nature. This idea is reinforced by the words of verse 27, which associate God's image with male and female. Male and female, you see, reflects the nature of the Trinity because they are both unique, made in the image of God, but they are distinct. There is one race of beings here, human beings. However, within that, there are separate distinctions. There is uniqueness even within that. So it's this dim reflection of this Trinitarian God who is one, but who is distinct even within himself. And it was a radical statement in the day that this was written. If you lived in ancient times and you came across this account, the account of Genesis is utterly unique in the value and the significance that it places on women. It's utterly unique in the value that it places on all human beings, but in particular that this account would say that women too were made in the image of God was incredibly unique. That they were not lesser. They were not an afterthought. But they in the heart and the mind of God was an equal representation of his image. Now, I would be amiss if I didn't mention here this morning that what this does outline for us is that there are clearly only two biological sexes in God's mind. God has designed human beings to be male and female. And we know that in the world there are people who suffer greatly because of this dissonance they feel within themselves over that idea, over that concept. So that's why as a church in February we're holding a summit that we're calling Good Design so that we can dig deeper into this because we don't have time to fully explore all of that this morning. However, I would want to mention this design is really good. That's why we called the summit Good Design because we want to celebrate what God has done in creating male and female. And at the same time, because we are called to be as image bearers who love one another and love those created in the image of God, we also want to be a people who try and wrestle with the brokenness in our world which distorts that image. We want to love those and welcome those and care for those who within themselves feel this dissonance, this great dysphoria and this pain over their perceived image of themselves and their biological sex. It's important that we recognize that they need to be cared for, that they are image bearers too. Last thing I want to mention here about the image of God is it means that we are uniquely creative. All creatures in God's creation can reproduce themselves in various ways. However, it is unique to human beings that we not only reproduce human beings, but we create great works of art. We create architecture and structure. We take this world that God has given us and we create new things out of it. We create things like poetry and music. Human beings are alone in all of creation in that we image this creative aspect of who God is. We join him in creation by creating ourselves. Now where do all those things come from? Where does this love for one another come from, this idea of questioning and reasoning? And where does this all come from? It comes from the image of God. It comes because you and I were designed to image and reflect and depict the God who's created us. 
How does an atheist account for all those things that we mentioned, this capacity to reason and this capacity to love one another? The truth is that atheists don't have an explanation for it. This is what Bertrand Russell says. He says that man is the product of causes which cannot, had not provision of the end they were achieving, uh, but the outcome of accidental collocation of atoms. Essentially, Bertrand Russell says, I don't know where all that stuff comes from because we're just an accident. It's all random. And Genesis really confronts this idea by saying, no, we're not random, we're not accidental. All these things, all these elements of what makes us human are intentional design by God. Intentional design. Maybe we'll put it this way in the words of C.S. Lewis, there are no ordinary human beings and no accidental human beings. C.S. Lewis once famously said, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat, but it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. And then this is the most interesting thing about what he says. Listen to this. He says, next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. I want you to pause for just a moment and look at the person next to you in your seat. Just turn and look around this room. This is the awkward moment where you lock eyes in church. No one wants to do it. But I want you to do it this morning. I want you to see and think about what I've just told you. Your neighbor, the human being sat next to you, is the holiest object that God has presented to your senses. Some of us feel closest to God. We're on a mountaintop when we're in nature and we see all these different amazing, wonderful things, and that's certainly true. However, I want you to recognize this morning that the person sat next to you is absolutely the holiest object that God has ever presented to your senses. That right now, in this room, shared together, we are sat next to image bearers of the holy God of creation. Coming to terms with this image within us is the most profoundly important journey that any of us can go on. Because the image of God isn't just our design, it's what defines us. We are defined by God. Last week I was talking about the image of God with some students in middle school, uh, and as part of that I came across what was hilarious to me, this article about misused objects, objects that we don't really understand the real purpose of them. I wanted to show a couple of you. Here we go, is the first one. Did you know that the hole in the handle of the saucepan was for a spoon to sit in like that? Am I the only one that was way behind on the purpose of this? I was shocked by this. this here's the next one. I've w often wondered what that tray in the oven at the bottom is for. I'll tell you what it's for in our house, junk. Just put junk in. <laughs> Did you know that it's actually for keeping food that you've prepared warm, that all the heat of the oven kind of builds there, and so you put it in the, the drawer, close the drawer, and it'll keep it warm for you? I bet oven makers the world over are deeply disappointed in humanity that we have failed to think about that. Here's the last one. In a box of Tic Tacs, did you know that the lid has that little indentation in it because it's meant to be a dispenser? That you turn the carton upside down and then you fold the lid down like that and there's one Tic Tac right there for you. The only thing they didn't realize is that Andrew cannot be served just one Tic Tac. I need at least five at a time. But I was shocked. All these little things in things that we misuse every day, little details about them that we don't understand their purpose, we don't realize their significance and their meaning. And I think the same is true about human beings. We expend ourselves in different directions and we don't realize our true purpose. 
We don't realize what we have been defined to do by this image that we bear. Our purpose is defined by God. Go on to read in Genesis 1, 28 through 31. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with its seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. I want us to think about this morning that the image of God doesn't just describe our identity, it describes our purpose. It defines us. Firstly, it means that we are defined as worshippers. Why would God place his image in the world? He'd done some pretty spectacular things thus far. Why does God elect to use his image in this final part of creation. A couple of scholars, Peter Renz and John Walton, suggest that there's a very specific reason why he does this. Another kind of image in the ancient world was an idol that people would erect in temples to depict the God that they would worship. You would go around temples of various kinds in the ancient world and you would find statues, you would find monuments that would depict a particular God. The idols were not considered God themselves. They were statues that let you know that the God was, in some mysterious sense, present with you. So worship would happen around them, not to praise the object in and of itself, but because it depicted something, it represented something. God goes on to tell his people that there's a prohibition against making idols, that he wants no graven images of himself, he says in the Ten Commandments. Don't create idols for yourself. The reason he says that is because God has already created a representation of himself. He has already created an image of himself that he has placed into the temple of the whole earth. What is it? It's you. You bear the image of your creator. You are his representative in creation that reflects and depicts him so that in your presence, other human beings and all of the rest of creation would know that God is present. We are created to form worship in the earth, to point towards worship. Because what is worship if not the recognition of a God who has created all things, who is all-powerful, who is full of grace and love and mercy? It's this whole line of reason that leads God to command his people in every generation to think particularly about how they live because as image bearers, we have a responsibility and a purpose to reflect and depict the God who's made us. In the New Testament, Paul says in the letter of Colossians, now you must put away all anger, wrath, malice, slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Paul's talking with the church about trying to recover this identity as image bearers and to live that out in their life, to let this identity that they have become the driving force of everything they do, to put away this slander and malice, this way of mistreating one another and dishonoring one another because that is not reflective of an image bearer. That is not in line with an image bearer. 
Every single one of us are worshippers. The only choice we have is what we are going to worship. We are hardwired by being created in the image of God to worship. It's in God's own nature. From eternity past, the Father has honored the Son. The Son has honored the Father. The Spirit has lifted up the Father and the Son. Worship was perpetually happening within the Trinity. And so when we are created in His image, it became a part of us that we too would share in worshiping and lifting up God. Hardwired into us. But the only question is, what are we going to use that for? What are we going to point ourselves towards? Sad truth is that many of us abandon our purpose as image bearers. It doesn't mean that we cease to be image bearers, but it does mean that we obscure or misuse what God has put within us. This drive to worship, and we'll learn more about that in Genesis 3. Second thing that the image of God does is it defines us as overseers. After God creates human beings, he blesses them, and he says to them that he wants them to subdue the earth, to have dominion over the earth over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the creatures on land. So the purpose of God's image bearers, the definition of God's image bearers is to be overseers over creation, to administrate God's rule and reign over creation. Now when we hear God use a word like subdue or dominion, it's easy for us to take that command and say, okay, God's made creation for us to do with as we please. We're the rulers, we're the boss, we get to do whatever we like. But if we are truly reflectors of God's image, of his nature, of his character, then what kind of ruler is God? If we are to be rulers like he is rulers, what kind of ruler is God? He's not heavy-handed. He's not authoritarian. He's certainly not selfish because we've learned already in Genesis 1, he does not create in order to satisfy himself. He creates to share his own joy and the love that has existed eternally with him. And so if we are to depict that, if we are to be image bearers that truly fulfill this purpose, this definition of being an overseer, then that means that we should reflect that same kind of character. We should care for creation. We should protect it. We should maintain it. We should sustain it. In this sense, something really unique happens with human beings that's different, again, from most of the creation narratives. In other creation narratives, God's created human beings as slaves to serve them. But in Genesis, what we discover is God has created human beings, image bearers, to be co-laborers with him. He puts us at his side and says, care for creation, this creation that I've created for my own glory, for myself. I want you to join me in protecting it and sustaining it and caring for it. Do you realize the significance of that? That God is not calling you a slave, not calling you insignificant, but he's calling you his co-laborer. He's inviting you to join him in caring for his creation means we have responsibility as image bearers. We have a great responsibility. In the New Testament, Jesus is having a conversation with people who are accusing him and challenging him. And as part of that conversation, they ask him why he doesn't pay taxes. And Jesus comes to them, he says, show me a denarius. This is in Luke 20, verses 24 through 25. Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And Jesus says to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now it feels like there's something missing in that explanation because he asks for the image of the coin. He says, give to Caesar the things that have his image on it. But then he says, give to God's what's God's. Well, what's missing there is, well, what has God's image on it? 
If you're giving to Caesar that which has his image on it, it naturally follows that you should give to God what's got God's image on it. What has God's image on it? You. Jesus is saying we have a responsibility as image bearers because his image is imprinted on you. you are, we are to give ourselves to God. We are purposed for his glory to demonstrate his nature. And yet these days we find ourselves, and I shouldn't really say these days because it's been a perpetual human problem, we have continually tried to find ourselves in lesser identities and lesser purposes. We define ourselves by our racial identity, our political identity, our sexual identity, our national identity, our gender identity, our economic identity, and the list goes on of things that place image bearer further and further down the list. And we define ourselves instead by something else. We don't offer to God this image that he's put within us. And the truth is we'll never be at peace unless we find our purpose in him. All of the purposes in our life must be in service to this identity of image bearer. And I'll, I'll explain a little bit how this works. Uh, myself as a husband, I, part of my identity is that I'm a husband. That identity should be in service to the higher identity of being an image bearer. It means that as a husband, I should be firstly, chiefly, reflecting to my wife the image of God. I should be embracing that identity and saying that my chief purpose as a husband is to image God. My chief purpose as a father is to image God. My chief purpose as an employee is to image God. Even my identity as a pastor is subservient to my, idea as, my identity as an image bearer. I'm defined by my identity of image bearer, which means as a pastor, it's my responsibility to understand that image within myself and work to make sure it's not obscured. To ask God to transform me, to conform me to the image of his son so it would be clearer and clearer and clearer. Now I told that account of Jesus and the coin for one more reason. I was telling Pastor Brian as we started this morning, when I first moved to this country, I had heard this phrase, show me the Benjamins. And Americans know what that is, but as a British person when I first came over, I kind of figured out from context clues it means money, but I had no idea, why does Benjamins mean money? And eventually I discovered that on the $100 bill is the face of Benjamin Franklin. Oh, you are great Americans, you know. I wonder if British people, we make it easy in England because we have to just put the Queen's face on everything. But we came over and, and I discovered that. I realized that Benjamin Franklin's face in particular meant that that note was more valuable than others that had different faces on. Well, let me ask you this. What does it say about your value that the face that's imprinted on you is God's? What does it say about your significance and worth? The last thing that we see here is that we are dignified by God, that there is incredible value placed on your life. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning and sixth day. I've squeezed those two together because I want you to understand something changes on day six after God has made man. Things move from being good to being very good because something of incredible value has now been placed in creation. The image of God, you and I. I will fail 
to articulate to you this morning of how much worth you are to your creator because you bear his image. You and I are without doubt the most valuable thing that God has ever created. This is why hatred of an image bearer, Paul Tripp tells us, is hatred of God himself. To mistreat a fellow human being is to mistreat an image bearer. That's why in the book of James, James talks about how we use our tongue and how we use our language, and he says, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Doesn't make any sense. Tim Keller says, when you believe in the image of God, the circle of protected life expands. It just gets bigger and bigger. But if you don't believe in the image of God, if you only believe in capacities of some kind, of people's usefulness, then it will continually contract. It will get smaller and smaller. The people to be protected and honored and loved shrinks to fit whatever definition you've come up with. We can't let ourselves become that kind of people that place dignity and value only on people that fit our own definition of what is valuable and significant and meaningful. We must let this concept of the image of God shape the way that we look and speak to everyone around us. And it's easy to think of that when we're talking about people that we love, like a mother or a father or children. But what about people who've wounded you? What about people who are harmful? What about your enemies? What about people who are addicted to various things that are causing untold destruction? What about people who don't share our beliefs, who don't know Christ as their Lord and Creator? I would ask you to consider this morning, does any of those things change the fact that they are an image bearer? No. We are to love and serve those around us because they are created in God's image. That's why Jesus tells us to love and pray for our enemies. Because no matter what they do, they are still image bearers. They are holy, they are significant, they are meaningful. There's equal dignity on all Genders, all races, all ages, no matter the story or the circumstances, no matter the ability or inability, there is dignity imprinted upon them. To see a human person, whether a baby in the womb, through a monitor, or a teenager with Down syndrome, or an elderly person lying in a nursing bed home, unable to care for themselves, when you look on them, you see an image bearer. You see someone who matters to God. If God created us in his image, this implies equality of personhood, equality of dignity, mutual respect, harmony, complementarity, a unified destiny together. And so the only question we're left to ask is, well, where is that in the world? Why isn't that happening? Why is it in every generation we are divided by things like race, divided by circumstances of our life, divided by gender, divided by age. It's because the image of God has become hidden. 
to our actions and our inactions. And Jesus Christ stepped in the well to recover that image. We're told in Colossians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And in Romans 8.29, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn amongst many brothers. Jesus Christ is the original image which has been imprinted on all of us. And that's what Christ stepped in the well to recover. Jesus' primary aim is to recover and enhance and strengthen the image of God in your life. It's the focus of all of his work in you and through you. Today we find ourselves sat in church, praising him, reaching out to him, calling on his name, and I believe that the deepest prayer of our hearts would be that God would clear the image within us that we would embrace it for ourselves and that we would embrace it for our neighbor, that we would see them as he sees them. This morning I want you to remember you matter to God, your life is uniquely significant in all of creation and so is your neighbors. And we will be restless until we find our rest in him, as Augustine said. We had to seek out that image we are to reflect that image and we are to celebrate that image together. We come to know Christ so that we can better know ourselves. I pray that we would do that this morning, that we would put our hope in that this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this image that you have imprinted on us, this image of incredible value, significant value, that, Father, sometimes we are ignorant of, that we obscure and we forget, and we become glass-half-full people who forget that imprinted within us is the image of a God who is so incredibly great. Father, I pray that we would fulfill our destiny, our calling as image-bearers, that we would reflect to creation and to one another the image that you have given us that we would value one another and that we would give ourselves to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just before the benediction, a reminder that if you're newer to South Street, uh, just then you have time to stay around, come on down here to the front area. I'll be down here. I'd love to meet you personally and answer any questions you might have about the church. And out at Kesslinger, there's our next steps gathering at 1145 where you can meet Pastor Jeff and others. Receive now today's benediction. May we go now. In the name of the God who created us in his image, that we may know his great love for us and share his great love with others. Amen. Have a great day.